Welcome to this evening's lecture in the Ralph Miliband series of this year on the future of global capitalism. It's a great pleasure this evening to welcome Dr. Hajun Shang, who will speak on the intriguing title of Hamlet Without the Prince, uh, develop, how development has disappeared from today's development discourse. He is currently reader in political economy at the University of Cambridge, where he's taught since 1990. He's also served as a member on the editorial board of the Cambridge Journal of Economics since 1992. He was born in South Korea and earned his MPhil and PhD at the Faculty of Ca Economics in Cambridge, where he's more or less lived over half your life, or a good, yes. certainly a good <laughs> chunk of it. Yeah. He's the author of several very influential books, including Kicking Away the Ladder, Development Strategy and Historical Perspectives, which won a number of very prestigious prizes. Other books include Globalization, Economic Development of the Role of State, of State, Reclaiming Development, an Alternative Economic Policy Manual, and Bad Samaritans. His new book, just about to come out in this... Well, this not quite. I mean, in September, yeah. It's is called 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism and it'll be published shortly from Penguin. We all want to know why 23, but maybe... Why not? Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's a very peculiar, <laughs> peculiar number, uh, uh, and it's certainly not a round number. Mm. He's obviously published, apart from these very well-known books, numerous articles in uh, many different kinds of journals on the state, market, and institutions, on globalization, on trade and industrial policies, and on the East Asian economies. Apart from this, he's worked as a consultant to many international organizations, including the UN agencies, the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, and he's worked as a consultant for governments as diverse as Canada, Japan, South Africa, the UK, and Venezuela on development policies. Please join with me in giving him a very warm welcome. Right. Uh Thank you, David, uh, for that very generous introduction. Uh, well, why 23 things? I mean, uh, since uh, the subject has been raised, actually, uh, I started with uh, 20, and then I was uh, sitting around with my literary agent, and both of us uh, told each other, isn't 20 too boring? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I mean, uh, on the other hand, I don't think I can write on 30 things or 29 things. So I started at 25 and thought that was too obvious. I don't like even numbers. <laughs> 21 was too close to 20. <laughs> so 23 was born. And later, hearing uh, this title, people have come with all kinds of uh, speculations, uh, which I hadn't imagined that uh, was possible. I mean, one theory was that I was a fan of Michael Jordan, the <laughs> famous American basketball player. I mean, I am a big fan of baseball, but not basketball, so I didn't even know that uh, he ha had number 23. Some people pointed out that uh, there was uh, this uh, movie uh, with uh, Jim Carrey called 23, which uh, that, uh, apparently in which uh, that 23 is the foundation of all conspiracy theories. <laughs> Some people thought that I picked it because uh, that 23 was a prime number. I mean, I, I mean, of course, I later realized that it was a prime number, but that wasn't the reason. I mean, it was one of those uh, random things. Anyway. 
so much for the advertisement. Um, Um, the definition of uh, development has, of course, always been a contentious issue. Income level is, of course, uh, one of the most widely accepted single measure of development, but most people agree that development is something more than providing high, higher material standards of living. So the most uh, well-known in this respect is uh, the UNDP's uh, Human Development Index and its uh, various variations. This uh, humanistic dimension of uh, development, if you like, emphasized by these indicators is, of course, absolutely essential in making us remember that material progress is only the means and not the end of development, I mean, uh, which is something that is unfortunately forgotten too frequently. Huh? But this another dimension that used to be central to the definition of development in the early days of uh, development economics, 1950s and 60s, but has become increasingly forgotten. And it is the production side of development. Before the rise of neoliberalism since the late 1970s, there was a general consensus that development is largely about the transformation of the productive structure and, of course, transformation of the technological and organizational capabilities that support it and the resulting transformation of social structures such as urbanization, dissolution of the traditional family, changes in gender relations, rise in labor movement, the advent of the welfare state, and so on. This was mainly, although not exclusively, to be achieved through industrialization. And even though they radically disagreed on how exactly this was to be done, most people ranging from Walt Rostow on the right to the dependency theories on the left share the view that development is something centered around a process of transformation in the productive uh, structure. And indeed, uh, most of us uh, still hold such view at the instinctive level. Why do we refuse to classify countries like Brunei, which has very high per capita income, as developed? because we implicitly think that <clears throat> achieving high income growth through resource bonanza is not development. At the other extreme, following the Second World War, Germany's uh, per capita income fell to the level of uh, the, that of uh, Peru and Mexico, but no one suggested that Germany should be reclassified as a developing country because people knew that Germany still had the, you know, despite millions of deaths, still had the technologies and organizational capabilities to regain its pre-war liberal living standard quickly, which it did in about 10 years. Huh? Now, these examples show that we implicitly believe that 
in order to qualify as developed, an economist's high income should be based on essentially superior knowledge embodied in technologies and institutions rather than simple command over resources. However, during the last quarter of a century, development has come to mean something quite different. It has come to mean poverty reduction, provision of basic needs, individual betterment in the sense of uh, providing better education and health and so on, and sustenance of uh, existing productive structure that is anything but development in the traditional sense. And this is why I talk about Hamlet. I mean, the, the development discourse has turned into a Hamlet without the Prince of Denmark. Huh? I mean, the, the, the central character is missing. Hmm? I'll, I'll uh, try to the, the elaborate this point by looking at well, critically looking at the, the use of term development in some of today's key development discourses. And I that, that basically look at three things. The Millennium Development Goals, the Doha Development Agenda of the WTO, and the discourse on the microfinance. Let's uh, first uh, look at the MDGs. Since the rise of neoliberalism, many people in the rich countries have come to take the view that developing countries are what they are only because of their own inabilities and corruption, and therefore that the rich countries do not have any moral obligation to help them. Fortunately, this uh, view is uh, not, well, at least yet, the mainstream view in most rich countries. Most people still believe that with a strong help from the rich countries, the developing countries can pull themselves out of poverty. And the most progressive and comprehensive of the mainstream discourse on development along this line is the Millennium Development Goals of the United Nations. There are many different elements in the MDGs as uh, they are known especially as uh, each goal has a number of targets that span across different sub-issues. So for example, that, uh, on the goal seven, yeah, you have uh, three, four different targets. Yeah? Goal eight, uh, four, five different targets. So that is uh, a lot more complex than what you see up here. But that, uh, looking at them, you will realize that uh, most of them are basically about reducing poverty and improving education and health. And this is obvious for goals number one to six, but even goal seven, environmental sustainability, if you look at the targets uh, the under that, you see that a lot of it is actually about health because that, uh, one of the targets is improving access to safe drinking water, Another target is increasing access to improved uh, sanitation. Now, loadable these uh, goals and targets may be, in my view, their sum total does not amount to development. Therefore, the only explicitly developmental dimension in the MDGs is uh, really in goal eight. And the targets under this goal include 
the following. So development of an open rule-based predictable non-discriminatory trading system, reduction of foreign debt, increase in foreign aid from the rich countries, provision of access to affordable essential drugs, and the spread of new technologies, mainly information and communications technologies. Now the two last items are, I mean, the, the more marginal in the international development discourse. Are so essentially this vision of development is based on the trinity of increased aid, debt reduction, and increased trade. Yeah? I mean, this is uh, the mainstream agenda, yeah? Hippic, Glen Eagle, what have you, yeah? Now, of course, that unless they are on a very large scales, debt reduction and increased aid are simply enabling conditions. Yeah? I mean, no one's uh, saying that, that, that countries can develop with yeah, reduction in the, the debt and increased aid. Yeah? So the trading regime <coughs> actually becomes the key in this vision. This uh, pro-developmental trading system is, in this vision, essentially one where the rich countries re reduce their tariffs and subsidies on agriculture, textile, clothing, and other things that developing countries export, especially you know, the least developed countries. So yeah, the AGOA initiative by the you know, American government, yeah, uh, the European ABA, the anything but arms uh, the agreement and so on. So that, that, that's the kind of trading regime that, that uh, is central to this vision. And unfortunately, in this vision, there is no notion that developing countries actually need to get out of those activities. When you think about it, the specializing in those activities, after all, what keep them poor? Eh? Interestingly, doing more of the same things that you are doing today is not how the rich countries became rich themselves. I mean, as I show in my previous books uh, in slightly different ways, uh, Kicking Over the Ladder and Bad Samaritans, yes, uh, the, the, this is uh, probably the only book, uh, at least so far, recommended both by Martin Ulf and Noam Chomsky. <laughs> so there's got to be something there. Huh? Anyway, that, so in these books I show how starting from 18th century Britain through to the 19th century United States, Germany and Sweden, down to 20th century Japan, Korea, Taiwan and Finland, development has been achieved by upgrading our country's productive capabilities and moving into more difficult industries by using protection subsidies and many other means of market-defined government intervention. So actually, the, the rich countries are by recommending this uh, route to development, insofar as it can be really called the route to development, uh, they are actually 
saying that uh, today's developing countries should do something completely different from what they themselves did when they were developing countries. Huh? You can call it historical amnesia or double standard, but whatever it is, that uh, is not going to be good. Huh? Now, in saying this, I do not mean that all forms of uh, traditional activities, such as agriculture or textile, are incompatible with development. Now, this is an important point. Huh? After all, the Netherlands, unbeknownst to most people, is actually the third largest exporter of agriculture. I mean, can you believe it? I mean, this country has the fifth highest population density in the world, I mean, excluding city-states and islands like uh, Hong Kong and Vanuatu. Huh? So land is the last thing you have. Huh? And in the standard economic textbook, you are always taught that in agriculture, you need land and labor. Yeah? Where's the land? Yeah? <coughs> I mean, land is the last thing that the Netherlands has. But the country still is the third largest ex exporter of uh, agricultural products. Huh? Now it's different, but until the early 1990s, Germany used to be the world's fifth largest exporter of textile and clothing. Yeah? So you can actually that, 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 uh, get quite rich on the basis of these uh, so-called traditional activities, only that these uh, that were possible because these countries applied advanced technologies to the transition activities and upgraded them. Yeah? So the Netherlands, you don't have land? Okay, you get rid of land in agricultural production process. Yeah? A lot of Dutch agriculture is done in water, yeah? hydroponic agriculture. Yeah? When the East Asian the textile the, the imports are threatened uh, their textile industries. The British reactioners, well, you know, we are losing out because of uh, the low wages in those countries, so we should also compete in low wages. Yeah? Let's import workers from Bangladesh and Pakistan. Yeah? It might work for the first few years, but after a while, these uh, workers also need to be paid a local rate. The British uh, textile industry completely collapsed. Yeah? The German reactioners, there's no way we can uh, compete in the, uh, the low wages. Yeah? So we have to upgrade. Yeah? So we develop a specialty textile. Yeah? We invest in the, 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 the design industry. Yeah? You know, I mean, probably that if uh, someone said that, uh, mentioned the, the phrase uh, the German fashion design in, I don't know, 1930s, uh, probably that they would, I mean, that, that phrase would have been called the oxymoron. Yeah? But today, I mean, you know, I mean, that, that, uh, starting from Karl Lagerfeld uh, in the office market yeah, to the, the Hugo Boss and so on, I mean, that there are a lot of uh, the German fashion designers. Yeah? I mean, this is how they maintain the, the textile industry. Yeah? Anyway, the point is that you can, I mean, the, the point is that uh, it's not the kind of activity that, that matters. I mean, this how you produce. Huh? So at the other extreme, if you look at, uh, say, statistics on the export structure, Philippines has one of the highest share of high-tech export in the world. Yeah? Why do we not then uh, call Philippines a developed country? Because their high-tech export is 
organized by someone else, using someone else's technology, and has a very little root in the, 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 the local economy. So when the, these foreign companies leave, the Philippines uh, will go back to yeah, primary commodity production. Huh? Anyway, I mean, the, basically the point that I'm trying to make here is that it's not what a country has, but how it gets it that determines whether a country is developed or not. And without any vision of transformation in productive structure, the vision of development behind the MDGs can only be described as development without development. Now, the non-developmental nature of the MDGs is bad enough, but the development discourse becomes positively anti-developmental when it comes to the so-called Doha development agenda of the WTO talks. Now, this uh, agenda was uh, launched in the ministerial talk uh, of the WTO in the, back in 2001. It's uh, that, uh, got lots of different elements, but uh, essentially the idea is that you need to do what I call the agriculture industry swap. Yeah? So basically the idea is that the rich countries should reduce their agriculture protection and subsidies so that the poor countries can export what they are good at, yeah? and also the textile and clothing. Yeah? In return, the developing countries should lower industrial tariff so that the rich countries can do what they are good at, which is producing industrial products. Oh, sorry. And uh, the ce central element in this uh, the deal is uh, the done through the so-called NAMA or non-agricultural market access uh, negotiations, which is uh, essentially about yeah, cutting industrial tariffs in the developing countries. Yeah? Now, the trouble with this uh, vision is, uh, first of all, that this agriculture industry swap is not going to help development very much, even in the anodyne MDG sense. Why is that? Because many developing countries are actually net agriculture importers. Huh? And many of them will actually get uh, hurt in the short run because uh, the prices of their agriculture imports are going to go up if the rich countries uh, that, uh, uh, give up subsidies on those uh, products. Huh? You may say that uh, in the long run that's a good thing. I'm not enough of an expert on agriculture to pass a judgment on that but it's very clear that in the short run, this will hurt a lot of developing countries. Huh? And then we'll have you know, impact on health and that, that, uh, hunger, which are all part of the MDG agenda. Moreover, the main beneficiaries of this opening of agriculture markets in the developed world are going to be developed countries with strong agriculture like the US, Canada, Austria, and New Zealand. Huh? I mean, the, they are going to get, depending on the estimate, 70 to 75% of uh, the benefits. Huh? The problem is that, you know, most developing countries specialize in exporting agriculture products, but which are the products that are usually known as tropical products. Yeah? Cocoa, yeah? coffee, yeah? 
those kind of things. Whereas uh, the protection and subsidies in the rich countries are concentrated in what are known as temperate products, beef, wheat, dairy, yeah? I mean, which are European countries are protection against cocoa. Yeah? For the simple reason that uh, there are no European cocoa farmers. Yeah? I mean, there are exceptions like uh, sugar, because that, that, that developing countries produce cane sugar, but European countries produce beet sugar. Yeah? So Finland has protection against sugar. Yeah? Tobacco and cotton in the American South, that's another the, the set of exceptions. But essentially, the protection and subsidies in the rich countries are focused on those temperate products. And there are only, even according to the World Bank, which is a big fan of this idea, there are only two developing countries that are going to benefit in a major way from this, and they are Brazil and Argentina. Yeah? And when you think about this, some of the main victims of the, this deal are going to be poor farmers, of course, I mean, rich by international standard, but the, the, the poor by their national standard, poor farmers in countries like uh, Norway, Japan, and Switzerland. And are we really willing to say that these farmers should go to hell so that some rich agricultural capitalists in Argentina can become even richer? Yeah? Uh, there's a serious problem here because uh, we have been sold this, yeah, image of yeah, this uh, the, the dismantling of agricultural protection in the rich countries benefiting poor farmers in Ghana and Cambodia. No, they are not going to <laughs> be the main beneficiaries. Yeah? The main beneficiaries are going to be the agro-corporations of the United States and Australia and very rich landlords in Brazil and Argentina. Yeah? I have a problem with that. Yeah? More importantly, in the long run, this uh, Doha development agenda is going to hinder development by making infant industry protection very difficult. In return for liberalization in agriculture and textile and clothing by the rich countries, developing countries are demanded to reduce their industrial tariffs. Of course, this will bring some benefits to the consumers of the developing countries, yeah, because uh, they'll now be able to buy cheaper industrial products, but these gains are unlikely to be more than 1.5% of GDP and at that a one-off gain. And this is according to the World Bank, once again a fan of this idea. Yeah? And this that, that, that benefit is soon going to be overwhelmed by the long-term losses that come from the inability to promote infant industries. Yeah? If the rich countries have their way in these uh, NAMA negotiations, average industrial tariff rate in developing countries will go down to about 5 to 7%. And this is the lowest level of tariff since the days of colonialism and unequal treaties when the developing countries are simply deprived of their right to set their own tariffs. Huh? And with uh, very few exceptions, they will be also lower than the rates that had prevailed in today's developed countries until the early 1970s. Huh? Moreover, the context in which the, the industrial tariff costs are to be made magnifies their potential negative impacts. 
because uh, the, the, in the last few decades, through the IMF and World Bank structure adjustment programs, the WTO, various uh, bilateral and regional free trade and investment agreements, other tools of uh, industrial promotion have become either impossible to use or very circumscribed. Yeah? Subsidies, quantitative restrictions, which are completely banned in the WTO, foreign investment regulations, foreign exchange rationing, and many other tools. And this has actually increased the relative importance of uh, tariffs. So tariff costs today are much more damaging to developing countries than, say, in the 1960s or 70s. Huh? To make it even worse, the tariff costs are to be made in a manner that is much more stringent than before. For example, when the Uruguay round uh, of the GATT talks, which gave birth to the WTO, was concluded in 1995, countries were made to cut average tariffs. Yeah? This time, no, it's going to be a cut line by line. Yeah? Tariff has to come down on every product. Yeah? And they are using this uh, that, that particular formula called the Swiss formula. I don't know why it's uh, called Swiss formula, but Swiss formula which uh, that forces you to cut higher tariffs more steeply. Yeah? So until now, countries have actually the freedom to kind of uh, choose certain industries. Yeah? I mean, well, the obligation is uh, on average, so you can choose to, although few countries actually do, in theory at least, uh, you can choose to protect certain products very heavily while having you know, low tariff on other products. Yeah? This time it's uh, not going to be allowed if this uh, NAMA deal is uh, struck yeah, according to the wishes of the rich countries. Yeah? So if you see it uh, this way, the Doha development deal is not simply non-developmental like the MDGs, but it is deeply anti-developmental in the sense that it not only encourages uh, developing countries to stick to their current production structure, but also makes it almost impossible for them to move away from it in the future. Now, having said all these things, I think it would be unfair to say that there is no consideration uh, in this uh, the, the currently dominant vision of development, no consideration of uh, the, the increase in the productive uh, capabilities. After all, improvements in health and education emphasized by the MDGs should increase the productive capabilities of the individuals, especially the poor people. Huh? However, today's uh, the mainstream development discourse sees these increases in productive capabilities as happening mainly through individual betterment. Huh? So for example, the six, if we go back, uh, six of the yeah, eight MDGs are about improving income, health, and education of individuals, yeah? with the partial exception of goal three, which by definition is a relational thing because it's a gender, yeah? agenda. But 
it's all about yeah, individuals getting more education, individuals yeah, that are having lower chance of death, uh, individuals having access to health. Yeah? Another important example is microfinance, which is supposed to promote development by helping people lift themselves out of poverty through their own entrepreneurial efforts. Yeah, I mean, at one level, there's nothing wrong with all this. I mean, entrepreneurship is important, albeit, yeah, it's, uh, the, although it's uh, not the only thing that matters. Yeah. When the capabilities of individuals in a country are enhanced, the country's productive capabilities are likely to increase. Huh? So at one level, nothing to object to, but there are only so many productive capabilities that can be developed through improvement at the individual level. If you actually look at the process of uh, the technological development and you know, economic growth in general, I mean, not in some you know, abstract, aggregated way, but uh, if you look at the real process, you realize that uh, development in productive capabilities actually mainly occur in productive enterprises, you know, be they state-owned firms or the, the small private firms or large private firms or cooperatives. However well-educated and healthy the individuals may be, they, they, they cannot produce rapid, lasting, and sustainable productivity growth that makes uh, development possible unless they are employed by firms engaged in production activities with large scopes of productivity increase. And even if the total number and the capabilities of the individuals involved are the same, more and better ideas will be produced by individuals working together in a productive enterprise because uh, they go through a process of uh, cross-fertilization. Huh? Moreover, much of knowledge in productive enterprises is acquired in a collective manner in the sense that they are created in the context of a complex division of labor rather than through the activities of isolated individuals. And they are uh, deposited in the form of organizational routines and institutional memories rather than purely in individuals. And because of this, uh, productivity growth is a collective process. Yeah? Let me put it more graphically. I mean, this is uh, getting a bit abstract. Yeah? Suppose that you have, say, 10 extra street food stores or uh, sorry, the 1,000 extra food stores or 1,000 one-man TV repair shops, how much productivity are they going to enhance compared to one modern supermarket or one large electronics manufacturer each employing 600 workers and getting supplies from 20 small enterprises that employ 20 people each on average. Even if all those uh, 1,000 owners of the food stores or 1,000 TV repair shop owners have PhDs in food technology or electronics. And even if most of the 1,000 
people working in you know, modern enterprises have only primary education, my view is that the former are still unlikely to enhance the country's productive capabilities as much as the latter can. You know, we tend to think that the, the individual education and things like that is the main driver of uh, the economic development, but it's not. I mean, uh, let me give you one simple example. Switzerland, one of the richest countries in the world, has by far the lowest university enrollment ratio in the rich world. Actually, it's a university enrollment ratio until recently it, uh, has been in the 30s, yeah? 34%, 37% of the relevant age cohort. Yeah? In the United States, it's uh, around 80%. In South Korea, it's uh, 90%. Even Latvia has uh, 60%. So how come? Yeah? I mean, the, the Swiss uh, have a much higher living standard than the Koreans and the Latvians, despite uh, having much less educated labor. Yeah? Anyway, I leave that uh, statistic with you. So this emphasis on individual capabilities and entrepreneurial energies is uh, largely misplaced. Yes, I mean, those things are important, but uh, that's not what development is about. Yeah? I mean, to put it uh, differently, what really distinguishes the US and Germany from, say, the Philippines or Nigeria are really their Boeings and Volkswagens. Yeah? It's not their PhDs in economics, not their engineers, yeah? not their medical doctors. Actually, the Philippines and Nigeria happen to export those people. Yeah? It's because they don't have enterprises like uh, Boeings and Volkswagens that they are poor. Yeah? What really distinguishes, say, Ecuador or Vietnam from the US or Japan is not the raw entrepreneurial energy of the people that uh, the neoliberals are so often talk about, but the abilities of the latter countries to establish and manage uh, productive enterprises that can channel the individual energy into raising productivity. You know, people in rich countries often have this uh, mistaken idea that, oh, you know, Developing countries do not develop because uh, their people are not enterprising enough. I mean, they don't have enough go-getters and movers and shakers. People who think like that haven't been to uh, developing countries. Huh? <laughs> no, you go there and you see that the place is uh, full of entrepreneurial energy yeah? because people are desperate. Yeah? So they sell everything that you can think of and everything that you couldn't think of. Yeah? No, really, I mean, in many developing countries, uh, you can actually buy places in queue for the American embassy. Yeah? There are professional cures. Yeah? You know, that, that <laughs> there are people who will get money from you for watching your car, which means that, 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 that refraining from damaging your car. Yeah? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that people have, you know, so much that the entrepreneur initiative and energy, partly because they are desperate, but they don't add up too much, yeah? because they lack this organization, they lack this uh, the institutional arrangements. Huh? So I say that uh, what little development that there is uh, in terms of uh, productive development in the currently dominant vision of development is what I call ersatz developmentalism. Huh? 
the belief that if you educate people better and make them healthier and give them security or property rights, all these are rational, self-seeking individuals will exercise their natural tendency to, well, to quote from Adam Smith's uh, truck and barter and somehow create a pro prosperous economy. Eh? No country has actually developed in that kind of way. Eh? In reality, development requires a lot of collective and systematic efforts at acquiring and accumulating better productive knowledge through the construction of better organizations, cross-fertilization of ideas within those organizations, and mechanisms to channel this individual entrepreneurial energy into collective entrepreneurship. Eh? So to conclude, the currently dominant development agenda has singularly failed to deliver any lasting development in the last few decades. Eh? I mean, I don't have time to go into the statistics, but basically, yeah, growth has collapsed in developing countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. You know, the, for example, in the bad old days of uh, import subsidization, per capita income in Latin America used to grow at about uh, 3%. Yeah? In the last 30 years, the growth rate has been barely 1%. Yeah? And to overcome this, uh, we need to go back to the what I call the productionist tradition of all development economics and put the transformation in productive capabilities that go beyond individuals back at the heart of development thinking. Of course, uh, by saying this, I'm not saying that, well, we can dust off our Albert Hirschman and yeah, that, that we'll have the, the answer. No, I mean, uh, there are lots of things that all development economics uh, that didn't pay enough attention to, partly, yeah, I mean, uh, out of circumstance, partly out of uh, intellectual failings. So there are all these uh, the new dimensions uh, that you need to the, the bring in, yeah? non-material dimensions as uh, embodied in yeah, human development approach and sense capability approaches. Yeah? The question of politics. Yeah? I mean, it's uh, unfair to say that old school development economists uh, didn't think about politics, but it is also true that uh, they tended to assume that the government is basically well-intentioned and reasonably capable. Yeah? which uh, that, uh, that, uh, often is uh, not the case. Huh? They didn't pay enough uh, attention to institutions. Technological development process was uh, that, uh, largely overlooked. You just assume that uh, somehow technological development didn't happen. Huh? Of course, that, uh, since the 80s, there has been an uh, explosion in the literature how technologies actually develop. Yeah? So you look at firm organizations, the labor process, yeah? inter-firm linkages, yeah? uh, global production networks. Uh, so there, there are the, the things that can fill this gap, but it is true that in the old days, yeah, technological development was uh, uh, taken rather for granted. And of course, uh, the, no one could blame them for not thinking about environmental sustainability because people didn't simply realize that uh, that could be a problem. Yeah? 
So we need to bring in these uh, extra dimensions, but uh, at the heart of it, I still think uh, that uh, the productionist uh, perspective uh, should uh, form the yeah, core. And of course, that uh, saying all this is uh, a lot easier than done, but unless uh, we develop a new development discourse, basically development that uh, will be reduced uh, poverty reduction, yeah? I'm not against uh, poverty reduction, of course, but you know, it's not the same. Yeah? And we have forgotten this uh, very important point. Yeah? And therefore, we believe that uh, we can basically develop these countries by giving them a bit more aid, cancelling a bit more debt, and buy a bit more fair trade coffee. Yeah? No, this is not going to happen, believe me. Yeah? Anyway, uh, I'll uh, stop there and uh, uh, invite you to make uh, questions and comments. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, a very engaging, concise presentation with a very distinctive argument. And I suspect there are questions. So we usually take them in clusters. Is that right? We'll yeah, take yeah, a yeah, number I'll of questions. Take, yeah, three or four. And, I've got yeah. at least uh, three or four in my cluster. But, <laughs> but I won't usurp my position yet. So if you could just uh, raise your hand so I can see who wants to ask a question. Yes, should we go to the lady at the back with a hand up? And then the gentleman with his hand up there. And then we'll have a look at the top. Yes. And then the top mic over there. Go ahead. Um, Perhaps you could just say who you are. And okay, um, Isabel Crabtree. Where in your view of this new developmentalism um, do you see extractive industries and extractive industrialization fitting in? Okay. Um, guy, yes. One uh, moment. Uh, Pasco Sabido from the LSE. Um, <coughs> Do you see a shift in development discourse happening with a, a global shift in power, perhaps from north to south or west to east, or do you see the, the institutionalization of the WTO locking in these countries into neoliberal discourse, and therefore even that might not bring it? Mm -hmm. Yes, Lady Top. Yes, um, thank you for a wonderful lecture. I was just wondering uh, how important do you think that infrastructure is for development, and if so, what kind of infrastructure for the, the type of development you have mm -hmm. been talking about? Thank you. Okay, yeah. one, one more. Yeah. Yes, let's go to this, this guy here at the front. There's time for probably several rounds of mm. questions, so don't feel excluded yet. Hi, my name is Asad. And when you said production is a heart of all the new development improvements that a country can take, I'm from Pakistan, and there are so many industries over there. But the thing is, it's cheap labor, and those companies and industries are earning a lot of money, but it's not trickling down in the economy. So, would you like to explain what it is that you know we need to do? Good question. Mm -hmm. One more, yeah, Mary Caldwell. When you say productionism, something I've got a great deal of sympathy with, do you just mean manufacturing and agriculture, or do you also include services? What about tourism, for mm -hmm, example? Mm -hmm. Is there a post-manufacturing developmentalism? Yeah. Should we start with those? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you for very good questions. Well, I have nothing against uh, extractive 
industries. After all, the U.S. and Australia have greatly benefited uh, from very efficient and high-tech uh, mining industry. Eh? And Finland started with uh, cutting down trees, but it upgraded into making paper-making machinery. Eh? So yes, I mean, uh, extractive industries can actually be a basis for yeah, productive uh, development. Of course, uh, the, the kind of assumption is uh, that uh, you have to do it with your own technology and organization. Yeah? If you just uh, uh, kind of lease your oil field to someone else, very little of it uh, is going to yeah, lead to long-term development. So, I mean, it's uh, once again not the physical nature of the product or the, the things like that, but how you actually do it. Yeah? Global shift in power, well, I think, uh, you know, we are really gazing into crystal balls here, but uh, it is happening, but I think it's uh, highly exaggerated. Yeah? You know, when the people say things like, oh, the Chinese economy will be bigger than the U.S. economy by year 2017 or 20. I mean, they are, first of all, citing purchasing power parity figures, which might be a better reflection of your living standard, but that, that uh, doesn't correctly reflect your economic power in the international economy. And secondly, you know, purchasing power numbers uh, vary a lot according to your method of estimate. So when the World Bank uh, decided to change the method of estimate in 2009, I think, Chinese income was uh, in purchasing power parity terms uh, reduced by 37%. Huh? So actually, that, that, that the shift is uh, happening, but uh, it's not happening to the extent that uh, many people uh, think it is happening. And who says uh, the Chinese uh, and Indian growth are sustainable? Huh? They have a serious uh, problem with uh, political sustainability before they even worry about uh, environmental sustainability. So I reserve my judgment there. Now, having said that, you know, WTO is a man-made agreement. Yeah? If you want to change it, we can change it. Yeah? So. <laughs> You know, the locking in, yes, I mean, the, 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 the because yeah, the powerful countries want it that way, but uh, if uh, that power shifts, we can rewrite the agreement. Yeah? So the, it's uh, the, to be seen. Huh? Infrastructure, yes, I mean, infrastructure is uh, absolutely essential. Huh? But uh, I think uh, the, the problem at the moment is that people think uh, of infrastructure in a way that is... Uh, de-linked uh, from industrial strategy. Huh? You know, I mean, uh, there is uh, this uh, the influential screw of thought which says, yes, uh, government should do industrial policy, but not of the kind of selective kind that intervenes at the industry level as the Japanese and the Koreans use, but uh, they should do general industrial policy like infrastructure. Yeah? That's uh, actually wrong because, you know, you do not build some abstract road, yeah? You do not build some abstract railway. I mean, the, you either build a new road linking your new, I don't know, the airport with uh, 
a region producing your cut flower export or you build a railway linking your copper mine with your seaport, yeah? Which one are you going to build, yeah? You don't have unlimited amount of money, yeah? So you need actually a good industrial strategy for good infrastructural development, yeah? But without, yeah, that a close uh, coordination between these two, you will be wasting a lot of money, yeah? You know, that, 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 just imagine, I mean, your Ministry of Production might be giving a lot of subsidies to your cut flower exporters while your Ministry of Infrastructure is uh, building the railroad for the copper mines and the cut flower exporters uh, suffer from bad road, yeah? Yes, I mean, the trickle down, you know, trickle down does happen, but empirically speaking, it happens very little if you leave things to the market. Yeah? So you have to do things to make things trickle down. Yeah? So if you want uh, your income to trickle down, you have to build a good welfare state. Yeah? If you want your foreign investment uh, to trickle down, you need policies to make sure that there is a technology transfer, there is a certain degree of uh, local procurement, and of course, the WTO trims or trade-related investment that uh, measures agreement has made all this very difficult, if not impossible. Huh? So, I mean, uh, we have a major problem there. Huh? I mean, for example, that people often think that uh, countries like South Korea and Taiwan are the proof that foreign investment is good for you. Huh? Well, A, these countries actually didn't have uh, all that much foreign investment, but as far as they had foreign investment, they had very strict rules yeah? on technology transfer, local procurement, worker training, yeah? cooperation with the, the suppliers, you know. So you need uh, those things. Services, well, services uh, is actually a very difficult category to think about because it is a catch-all term. Huh? So everyone from your noodle vendor on the street uh, to your, I mean, the software engineer is in the services industry. So the, which bit are you talking about? Huh? And also that in most uh, services, uh, raising productivity is uh, very difficult. Huh? I mean, can you imagine a way to raise uh, productivity of a string quartet? Yeah? No, they could uh, trot through a 27-minute piece in uh, nine minutes <laughs> and declare that their productivity has uh, trebled, but uh, they have in the process uh, destroyed the product. Yeah? So actually, that, that there are very few service industries uh, where productivity growth is uh, the, uh, easy. There are very few, and, and they usually, not entirely, happen to be activities that are directly linked to the manufacturing industry. Yeah? So the, if you look at the tradable high productivity services, they tend to be supplying to the manufacturing sector, yeah? the financial the, the industry, the, engineer, the engineering services, the design yeah? services and so on, yeah? software. Yeah? I mean, their main customers are not actually ordinary consumers. They actually supply the manufacturing firms, so that, that this idea that somehow you can skip industrialization and that, that build a rich service economy is actually quite mistaken. I mean, that once again, that Switzerland comes in as a useful example. You know, people often think that Switzerland lives on 
taking care of uh, black money deposited uh, by third world dictators and uh, selling cowbells and cuckoo clocks to Americans and the Japanese. But actually, uh, you probably didn't, well, unless you read my Bad Samaritans, uh, you didn't know that uh, Switzerland is literally the most industrialized country in the world. Yeah? It has the highest manufacturing output in the world per capita. Yeah? Of course, uh, we don't see many Swiss products, partly because the country is small, but also because it uh, tends to specialize in producer goods, like industrial chemicals, precision machines, yeah? So you don't see them in the way you see Japanese or yeah, Korean or the, the, those products, but actually it is, yeah, per capita, the most industrialized country in the world. So I mean, that, that this uh, proposition that uh, we can somehow build, yeah, uh, skip industrialization and build sustainable development on the basis of services, yes, I mean, if you are Seychelles, yeah, with uh, 85,000 people and fantastic uh, natural endowment, probably you can have decent standard of living on the basis of services, but very few countries are that lucky. I've got my hand up, so I'll just choose myself for a mm. second. And I can only get away with that because we've got quite a lot of time to ask you questions. I just want to follow that up by asking you this question. It seems to me that there is a single counterfactual, counter-developmental model presupposed in your critique of development mm. discourse, which is something like infant industry protection, sustained tariffs, better economic organizations, build productive capacity, industrial policy, mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there really one, in this day when you know, the big models have hit the dust, as it were, like the Washington Consensus mm -hmm. and the post-Washington Consensus models, are you really arguing that there's one counter-model mm -hmm. which is generating, we can just pull out of your critique, or are there, in fact, a diversity of different kinds of models which are much more indexically linked, mm -hmm. situationally bound to the context of countries? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we've had two people here recently make those kind of diverse arguments, someone like Justin Lin, who bangs on all the time mm -hmm. about comparative advantage mm -hmm. and building that up, but someone like Danny Roderick, who actually has a much more sustained model of the pluralist development mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of countries, so would have a different take coming out of it. And then yeah, linked yeah. to that, I would just ask you one other, other question is, you know, in here, there's also something missing. I mean, in a mm. sense, it seems to me China, India, Vietnam, I mean, they have made extraordinary gains in the last three to four decades. Mm -hmm. Asia's lifted 600 million people out of poverty. That is quite unprecedented mm -hmm. in, in historical time. Mm -hmm. So they are getting something right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is that? Mm. And how does that fit into your... <laughs> and how does that fit into your argument? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, enough of me. Over to you guys again. Yes, lady with the hands up. Thank you. I was just wondering, um, in terms of aid and assistance, to what extent do you think the developed countries are truly altruistic? The developed countries actually? Altruistic. Altruistic, ah, oh, right, yeah, yeah, okay. It's a thought, yes, mm. lady. Um, you mentioned environmental sustainability, and I was just wondering to what extent you think the new concerns with environmental sustainability are a legitimate reason for perhaps thinking that developing countries might have to um, pursue a slightly different trajectory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's just take one more. Yeah, gentleman at the back. I'll come back in a minute. We'll come back upstairs in a minute. Um, 
When you express a desire for a new discourse and development, do you feel that the problem lies in the conception of neoliberal strategies or in their implementation? In their implementation? Implementation, yeah. Okay, well, that's more than enough mm. for this round. But um, we'll come back. Yeah. Um, you know, your question, David, uh, it really depends on at what level do you generalize. Eh? So if you want to reduce it to a few kind of uh, general principles, like you have to somehow protect and nurture your infant industries, yeah? infrastructure investment have to be coordinated with yeah? your industrial strategy, productive uh, firms need to be built and so on. Yes, uh, then there is one model. On the other hand, if you go into the details, I mean, I have, uh, yeah, I mean, always been of the view that uh, there is no one type of capitalism. There are many different types of capitalism. Yeah? And, I mean, that we have to kind of uh, accept that countries have different conditions, different objectives, different uh, political uh, balances of power, and therefore they will all pursue strategies that are very different uh, from each other. Yeah? So, you know, if you're Denmark or Finland, yeah, small countries with uh, four or five million people, what you can do is uh, very different from when you are the United States or the China. Yeah? On the other hand, even with uh, similar conditions, Denmark basically went for small farms organized into cooperatives, yeah? agriculture exports, small high-tech design firms. Finland went for big things, yeah? Nokia, yeah? So, you know, uh, even with uh, similar conditions, countries uh, pursue very different strategies. But if you generalize enough, I mean, that uh, you will get yeah, some kind of common principles. Now, the real question is whether that particular uh, level of generalization that you have chosen is the appropriate one for the question you're asking. Yeah? So for some things, yes, I mean, uh, you could talk about one model. Yeah? For some other things, uh, you cannot even talk about uh, the one model in one country because uh, in some countries, uh, you have three, four different regions all pursuing different things. Yeah? So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, how about China, India, Vietnam? Yeah, of course, uh, they have uh, been extraordinarily successful. But exactly because uh, they, I mean, while liberalizing, uh, followed uh, essentially what today's rich countries uh, did in the past uh, rather than what they tell you to do today. Yeah? No, really, I mean, that, that uh, you know, if you think about, uh, the, for example, China, I mean, it does almost everything wrong, yeah? According to the orthodox, yeah, I mean, huge public enterprise sector, getting huge subsidies, yeah? A lot of regulations on foreign investment, yeah? Tariff was, uh, the, the, the average tariff was about 40% uh, until it joined the WTO, even after joining the WTO and lowering the tariff uh, to below 20%, there are still a lot of uh, hidden quantitative restrictions, yeah? rampant corruption, no democracy. How do you explain that? Yeah? Once again, I mean, there are worries about these countries. I mean, I talked about the uh, political sustainability of China and India. 
Vietnam has the same problem, yeah? because of uh, the rising inequality and so on. Also, Vietnam, I think, has a, a bigger problem in terms of the productive uh, strategy because it has been fantastically good at doing things that are obvious yeah, so far. So, for example, until 1986, uh, Vietnam didn't used to export a single coffee bean. Yeah? Today, it's the second largest exporter of coffee after Brazil. Yeah, yeah you probably didn't know this. Yeah? So, they have been very good at those things, but uh, they haven't really upgraded that much. Yeah? I was actually in Vietnam in December talking to their government people. They are worried yeah? whether they'll somehow come up with a, a more coherent upgrading strategy as uh, China has, I don't know. Yeah? So th there are all these worries, but yes, uh, th th they have been extremely successful. But uh, my point is that they haven't followed neoliberal strategy. Yeah? They did liberalize, but uh, that's not the same as following yeah, neoliberal strategy in the same way that the Soviet Union allowing some uh, private uh, restaurants in the 1980s wasn't the same as the abolition of socialism. Yeah? Hmm. Aid, altruism, yes, I mean, I think uh, there is an element of altruism there because uh, the, you see aid uh, statistics and there's a big difference between different countries. Huh? Sweden, Norway, they give uh, something like 1.2% of their GDP as uh, foreign aid. Huh? Americans, Japanese, they give uh, something like 0.3%. Yeah? So if uh, there was an altruism, why would that, I mean, you know, actually, if uh, the, it was uh, entirely selfish, the Americans uh, would have given more aid because uh, they have more political stake in yeah, developing countries. Yeah? What does uh, the, the Norway get uh, from giving aid to poor countries? Yeah? So there is uh, clearly an element of altruism, but that's not to say that there is uh, uh, no other thing. Yeah? I mean, the, there are often strategic considerations in giving aid. Huh? Environmental sustainability, yes, I mean, that, that this is a major challenge. Huh? Because, uh, first of all, we have this uh, moral issue. Huh? You know, depending on the estimate, between 70 and 85% of CO2 gas in the atmosphere have been produced by today's rich countries. Huh? So a lot of developing countries feel very angry about some of these countries, not quite saying, but implying that, well, you guys probably should uh, stay poor so that yeah, the world wouldn't uh, uh, collapse. Yeah? So the, their view is that if you want uh, the world not to collapse, you have to pay us. Yeah? Now, there's uh, no easy solution there. Uh, there's, uh, the, the, there are quite a lot of interesting arguments in this area. I am not an expert, but in my view, I think uh, that technological solution has to be an important part of it. Huh? And this means that the developed countries actually will have to do it, because uh, most developing countries, I mean, there are some exceptions like China and Brazil, but most developing countries simply do not have the capabilities to come up with yeah, environmentally more sustainable technologies. And let's not underestimate the power of technology. I mean, I do not believe in this uh, techn technological cure-all, but technology is 
you know, what uh, has uh, been driving economic development. And, you know, it, uh, let me give you an example. I mean, in the 1970s, when I was a little schoolboy in South Korea, I was very worried that uh, the, because uh, everywhere you read that uh, they said the world will run out of oil around 2000. Hmm? And I realized, my God, I mean, in my 40s, I'll be, you know, uh, walking everywhere because uh, we don't have any oil. Yeah? Well, actually, we have uh, run out of oil as defined by the technologies of 1970s. Huh? But since then, we have uh, developed all these technologies to get oil from you know, unimaginable places. Yeah? So we have uh, more oil. Of course, uh, that doesn't mean that it's uh, limitless, but, you know, so that uh, a large part of the solution will have to come from, of course, uh, the changing yeah, consumer behavior in the, the rich countries and uh, so on, but, you know, an important part has to be in terms of coming up with the technologies that are more environmentally sustainable, and frankly, it will have to be mostly done by the rich countries, yeah? because uh, poor countries simply do not have the capabilities. Yeah? Is uh, neoliberal theory wrong or the implementation wrong? Um, probably both, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, to think about this problem, let me give you an illustration. In the 1980s, when heterodox <laughs> economists, well, I wasn't in the game yet, but uh, the, like myself, argued that this uh, one-size-fits-all strategy of the World Bank and the IMF will not work because countries have different institutions, different history, and so on, the mainstream ac economists actually laughed at us. Huh? They said, you know, economics is a science, there's only one science, would you recommend that Ghana has different physics from that in the United States? Would you recommend that Brazil has different chemistry from that of uh, Germany? Of course not. So uh, there's uh, one right kind of economics and everyone has to do it, yeah? So, you know, really things like yeah, institutions and so on, that are only for yeah, people who are not clever enough to do yeah, hard mathematical modeling. Yeah? Now, since the late 90s, mainstream economists have become very interested in institutions, yeah? geography, culture, history. Why? Because they had to explain away their policy failures. Yeah? <laughs> this is uh, the, what I, the, the, in some of my papers, called the ABP, anything but policy. Yeah? So it's the corruption, it's the culture of laziness, it's uh, the bad geography, it's climate, it's uh, the, the bad institutions, yeah? colonial history, you name it. Yeah? But it's never the policy. Huh? <laughs> so, uh, well, my view is that uh, the conception is wrong, of course, but the implementation was also wrong in the sense that, you know, I mean, uh, Fortunately, they have finally grown out of it, but until the Asian crisis in the late 1990s, IMF would uh, recommend 80% cuts in the, the, the bread subsidy, rice subsidy, and then they get surprised when they have a riot. Yeah? You know, I mean, uh, uh, this is uh, fundamentally naive, yeah? or evil-minded. Yeah? I don't know which, but... Yeah? I mean, how can you implement a policy which uh, you know is uh, going to blow up? Yeah? So uh, there is a serious uh, problem with uh, implementation, but 
My view is that, that uh, what is more wrong is uh, the conception, because uh, the, this idea that somehow if you deregulate everything and open up everything, somehow development will happen. Yeah? It hasn't happened. Yeah? Another round? You need one more. You can bear it. We'll just take two or three, just a couple of more questions. Oh, I'm mm. happy to take them all. All right, we'll just take. La lady at the front here. We're just going to mic to her at the top. If you could keep your questions very short now, we'll have as many as possible, and then to give you a, mm. just a few moments to, to bring it to an end. Yeah. Hello. Um, you didn't mention really uh, ownership, and I think in the context of production, isn't it actually even the deeper, deeper uh, cause or route for uh, development, production of uh, ownership of production, ownership of uh, resources. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Um, how does uh, countries' inequality impact development? And, uh, yeah. Sorry, uh, can you repeat that? How does inequality Inequality, yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned that the Asian crisis caused the rethink of some development policies. Do you think that the current crisis will eventually cause a rethink? And do you see any of changes in this mm. thinking? Guy behind you. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, the old developmentalism, at least in Latin America, we're faced uh, with a bunch of military dictatorship reactions. Are we free of this kind of reaction today, or do we have to worry about mm. being called communist again? Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the, um, reaching, uh, the process of reaching countries getting rich, uh, the industrialization process comes with uh, 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 colonialism and also you have this uh, Second World War and several world wars. Do you think co development comes with a price? And what, if there's a price, what are the prices that developing countries should pay in, in terms to get development? Okay, we'll just take one or two more. Yeah, let's uh, put a mic up there. Yeah, okay. Um, last year, the G20 bailed out the IMF, mm. about a trillion or $750 billion, um, but with no conditionalities. So <laughs> Very if, good, you, yeah. if you had to devise a structural adjustment program for the IMF, what kind of policies would you suggest? Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> That's a Great question. Okay, there's two guys at the back in the, in, the, in the middle there. We'll take you both briefly, and then I'm afraid that will have to be it. Shelley, I was just wondering what your views on the traditional role of agriculture in industrial development was, and whether that's still relevant today. Oh, you had the same question? Okay, so we'll just take one more from down here. Yes. Um, where does urbanization fit into your vision of development? Right. Gosh, I'm yeah, asked uh, to comment on things that I really don't know about. Um, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, yeah, ownership, you know, I take a very pragmatic view of this ownership question because uh, if you look at various uh, successful development cases, you see many different forms of ownership 
and many different forms doing well. I mean, uh, for example, you know, the common perception is that state-owned enterprises are inefficient, but you know, did you know that uh, the something like 22% of Singapore's GDP is uh, produced by state-owned enterprises, where the corresponding ratio in the Philippines is uh, less than 2%. Huh? So whatever it is, it can't be you know, state ownership that, uh, or lack of it uh, that can explain their performance difference. Yeah? China has come up with uh, some interesting hybrid forms of uh, ownership. I mean, the famous uh, TVs uh, or township and village enterprises, which are legally owned by the local government of the town or the village, but for all practical purposes run as if it's uh, the privately owned enterprises of the, the local political bosses. Huh? I mean, they have worked quite well, so I take a pragmatic approach, whatever works, works. Yeah? Inequality, yes, I mean, inequality, uh, you know, in the end, uh, this uh, equity issue is one of the things that drive politics. Eh? And the reason why you have good welfare state in Europe is because of the history of yeah, socialist movement, trade union movement, the Second World War, and everything. Eh? And I express my concern with the future of China and India because uh, the inequalities are going through the roof. Eh? Especially China, I mean, the, uh, China's income distribution now in the lower division of Latin American League. Huh? I mean, that probably can be sustained in Latin America because uh, they've had that for the last 500 years. Huh? But in China, this is new, huh? only 30 years old. And how do you also justify that in a officially socialist country? Huh? They have a problem. Huh? Now, this uh, is okay for the moment because when income grows at 10% every year, even if inequalities are going through the roof, uh, everyone's getting better off, even the, 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 the kind of so-called losers. But as soon as uh, this uh, mega growth uh, stops, they'll have a huge problem. Eh? India, the same problem. Yeah? So that I think that, that, that this is something to watch. Yeah? Is the world going to change because of the current crisis? Well, I mean, uh, telling from the report on Royal Bank of Scotland uh, bonuses, I don't think so. Huh? <laughs> you know, how do you justify this uh, that, uh, bank which has been bailed out with public money, officially owned by the government, yeah? making 3.6 billion pound losses, handing out 1.4 billion <laughs> pounds in bonuses? Yeah? Bonuses for what? For failure. My view is that there's uh, simply too much power, too much money, and too much intellectual uh, prestige at stake for things to change quickly. Eh? You know, I mean, I put myself in their shoes. Yeah? If you have spent last 30 years uh, pr promoting uh, efficient market hypothesis, you're not suddenly going to come out and say, sorry, I uh, have uh, been lying for the last 30 years. Huh? <laughs> we'll find all excuse, yeah? even if it uh, comes down to saying that, I don't know, that the, the, the God is against you to find excuse to save your theory. That brings me to this point about the 
you put it brilliantly that uh, bailing out of the IMF by the G20, huh? <laughs> no conditionality. No, actually, IMF was in real big trouble before the recent financial crisis. For a couple of years before the financial crisis, it actually couldn't balance its own budget. Huh? An institution that has made a job of telling everyone else to balance their budget couldn't balance its budget. It was uh, due for 70% staff cut. Well, God is on their side. Yeah? <laughs> the financial crisis happens, and suddenly they are showered with money. Yeah? And that uh, 40, no less than the 40 the structure adjustment agreement. Yeah? They are back in business. Yeah? Yes, I mean, that they have to be given conditions. Yeah? You know, I mean, that this is the, that the whole point of I mean, uh, my books like you know, Kicking at the Ladder and uh, Bad Samaritans, I mean, there's always double standard. Huh? Yes, uh, so developing countries get into financial crisis. If you're Indonesia, IMF comes to you and says that uh, you have to raise your interest rate to 80%. Huh? The United States have a uh, financial crisis, uh, your interest rate uh, goes down to 0%. Huh? You borrow money from the IMF, they put condition. Huh? To you, IMF borrows money, they don't have any condition. Yeah? So the, we have to the, constantly expose these uh, double standards. But yes, I think uh, the first condition for the IMF uh, should be to own up to the fact that they have failed. Yeah? No, seriously, I mean, if uh, the, the IMF was a medical doctor, it would have been uh, sued for malpractice uh, 75 times. Huh? No, I mean, this is a really serious problem because, uh, you know, I'm an economist, but economists have ruined so many people's lives, yeah? Starting from the days of uh, Soviet uh, central planning down to IMF structure adjustment, we have blood on our hand, yeah? You know, I mean, that, uh, for IMF economists, uh, that, that, that this number might be just one cell in their spreadsheet, but it means millions of uh, the, the children going hungry at school because uh, the school cannot afford to give them free lunch anymore yeah, because of uh, the, the budget cut. Yeah. It means uh, that, 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 that hundreds of thousands of workers are losing their jobs and their family being ruined and so on. Yeah. I mean, you don't need to put uh, people in concentration camp to ruin their lives. Yeah. But then somehow economists are, that, that are immune to malpractice. Yeah. You know, medical doctors have to live with this uh, responsibility all the time, but economists can't do anything, yeah? And then if uh, something goes wrong, you can blame it on their geography, yeah? How convenient, yeah? <laughs> wow, uh, things like uh, Latin American military dictatorship, yeah, I mean, uh, let's not uh, make any assumptions. I mean, uh, these are still relatively young democracies. Who knows uh, that the military can come back, huh? Price of development, my God, I mean, this is uh, too, too big. I mean, yes, I mean, uh, the only thing I can tell you is that development never is a pretty process, huh? I mean, some are slightly better than others, but, you know, I mean, every country is, I mean, you think uh, that uh, sort of nice little countries like Finland uh, had a picnic and developed, no, I mean, no, seriously, I mean, Finland was a Russian colony for 600 years. Huh? Uh, sorry, a Swedish colony for 600 years. And then it became Russian colony for 100 years. Yeah? 
uh, and and it uh, went independent uh, at the time of the Russian Revolution, and then they had a major civil war between the left and the right. Huh? And uh, the, in a country with uh, barely three million people at the time, I mean, it was a short war, but uh, something like 30,000 people were killed. Yeah? And the victorious uh, the right deprived uh, the, the former communists of voting right until 1944. Huh? And also when the Second World War happened, uh, this country, you know, having been so fed up with uh, anything Russian, sided with the, the Germans, very wrong choice. <laughs> and then the Russians uh, made them pay through their nose after the, the, the end of the war, through 10 years of very heavy repatriation. Huh? You know, I mean, they had everything you can think of. Yeah? I mean, it was uh, the country that had the last famine in Europe, which was uh, 1865 or something like that. Yeah? You know, I mean, it was uh, the, uh, the, the, the literally the poorest uh, European country until the 1950s. Yeah, yeah today you think, uh, I mean, my God, I mean, these guys had it easy. I mean, they had ethnic homogeneity and yeah? they, they had uh, good geography. <coughs> yeah? I mean, they didn't have too many natural resources, yeah? No, I mean, the development is always like that, yeah? So the, if you look at the, the closely enough, every country had yeah, very the, the, the kind of unfortunate uh, things happening. You, we, we can and should uh, make these processes uh, as uh, the, the, uh, the painless as possible, but I mean, the, the, Never will be any development process that's yeah, uh, but, uh, nice and easy. Huh? Uh, urbanization, I must confess that I have nothing to say on that. On agriculture, yes, I mean, agriculture, you know, as I uh, gave you the, uh, said in the Dutch example, I mean, Agriculture based on traditional technologies have never made anyone rich. Yeah? But that doesn't mean that you cannot become rich with agriculture yeah? if you combine it with the right technologies. Yeah? Now, you can import some of these technologies, but uh, even to know what technologies to import, you probably need to have some industrial development and you probably need to have capabilities to produce certain agriculture inputs. You have to have certain industrial capabilities to be able to provide the, the technical extension services and so on. So even if you predominantly rely on agriculture, you will need yeah, some industrial development. And also there are cases like I mean, uh, it depends on the country, but cases like Germany, Japan, and South Korea, where agricultural productivity growth uh, has uh, provided uh, rising rural income, which then provided the, 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 the bigger domestic market for manufacturers. So the, it can also play an important role in demand generation uh, for the local industries, although uh, examples like Denmark show that uh, probably some countries can develop on the basis of agriculture export. Huh? But even there, it wasn't free market. It was uh, basically cooperatives and state support that made uh, Danish uh, agriculture uh, successful. Okay.
think I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, I want to just thank you for, you know, very compelling, strong and powerful set of arguments which turn, if I had to summarize it to someone on the phone, I'd say which turn on sort of four points. One, ignore economists. Two, you thought it was never policy, but three, it really is policy. <laughs> policy matters and matters profoundly in the way that you've, you've argued. And then finally, you know, watch for the, what the rich countries did always and do, but not what they say they did and do. And of course, you've written many compelling books precisely around these arguments. And thank you. So we thank you not only for tonight, but for your very sustained contribution.